Hi, everybody. Thank you very much for tuning into this Bible study. We are going through the book of Acts, and tonight we are going through Acts chapter 3. This is actually kind of a two-part uh, message that we're doing. Acts 3 and 4 is one story, um, but I am only going to do Acts chapter 3. When I first read through it, I thought about doing 3 and 4 together because it is one uh, one story that we're looking at, and you really need to see Acts 3 to understand Acts 4 and Acts 4 for 3. Um, but it would have been over two hours at least, uh, which is a little bit long uh, for these talks. So we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 3 today, and then next Wednesday we'll be looking at Acts chapter 4, which plays right back to Acts chapter 3. Um, but before we get into that, I want to do some historical and cultural context, as well as some biblical context. So we're actually going to open up the book of John before we get into Acts. Before we go into John, uh, we're going to pray. So why don't you bow your heads with me and let's uh, open this up in prayer. Lord, thank you for this time. Lord, I pray that you will speak through me, be here with me now. Um, open up our minds, our hearts, our ears to the words you would say to us. Um, we love you, Lord. Be here with us. Amen. Amen. Okay, so um, we're opening up our Bibles, and I want you to actually open up to John 20. Uh, nope, that's Acts. Let's go to John. I didn't mark it beforehand. Uh, John 20. And we're going to actually start on verse 19. So context for this. Um, Jesus has been buried, uh, and at this point, we have had a few people... Uh, witness the empty tomb, but Jesus has not yet uh, shown himself to the group, to the disciples. Um, so picking up on um, John 20, verse 19. On the evening of that first day of the week, so that would be Sunday, on the evening of the first day of the week, so we know Sunday is uh, Jesus' ascension. We know that. Uh, and the first day of the week for the Jews is Sunday. Um, so we know that this is Sunday evening. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together, with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. When the disciples were together, with the doors locked out of fear of the Jews, I want you to keep that in mind as we read through Acts chapter 3 and Acts chapter 4. In John 2019, we see a scared group of disciples. Uh, their Savior has been killed. The Messiah, they thought was the Messiah, is now dead. This is before Jesus, is, before Jesus has shown himself to all of them, which you see right then. He does right after this. But notice that the culmination of the disciples, of years of following Jesus, it concludes with Jesus going on the cross and dying. And at that very moment, they are a scared, scared, very, very timid group that are hiding out of fear from the Jewish leaders. They are behind locked doors. So now as we look at Acts 3 and Acts 4, and as we continue through Acts, keep that in mind, in the back of your mind, um, that that's who these disciples were before they met the resurrected Christ. And that changed everything. Okay, so now for some uh, historical context. 
Um, the passage that we're going to be looking at right now, um, one of the things that I want to talk about is the temple. The temple that existed in Jerusalem in Jesus' day. So in looking at the temples, you have um, King David, right? We're going to go back away. So you got King David uh, who had the tabernacle system, which was a tent temple, uh, which you can look that up and you can see the tabernacle. Uh, it was a tent. It had the Holy of Holies. It had all of the same um, key elements or ingredients that are were present in the temple in Jerusalem. But it was uh, the Jews at that time were nomads. They were a traveling group that lived in in tents and tabernacles. And so that was the first temple was a tabernacle, was a tent. So King David is the second king. For Israel, the first one you have is Saul, and then you have David. And David was hugely successful. And David says, I want to build a temple to the Lord. I live in this amazing palace. I want to build a beautiful palace for the Lord. And God says to him, no, it's not for you to build my temple because your hands are bloody. You are a warrior. You have killed many, many, many thousands upon thousands of people. You are a warrior. You are not called to build the temple. But you are able to set aside the elements, get together all the things that are going to be needed to build this temple, and your son will build it. That's King Solomon. Uh, and the verses that can back all this up, uh, First, Chron uh, First Chronicles uh, 17, 1 through 5. First Chronicles 17, 1 through 5, we see King David wanting to build the temple. Uh, and then we see him setting aside the materials for his son, uh, King Solomon, to build the first temple, which that's in 1 Chronicles uh, 22, 2 through 5. Solomon then does build the temple, uh, which is destroyed by the Babylonians with the Babylonian captivity, and the Babylonians uh, ransack it uh, and destroy it in 586 BC. So 586 BC, you have the first temple being destroyed. And that is in 2 Kings 25 verse 9. 2 Kings chapter 25, 9 is where we see the Babylonians destroy that first temple. Okay, so then you have King Cyrus of Persia allows the temple to be rebuilt under the leadership of Zerubbabel. For you expecting parents out there, I throw Zerubbabel in the hat as a potential name for your son or daughter. Why not? Uh, that's Ezra uh, chapter 1, verse 2, we see that uh, King Cyrus uh, and Zerubbabel is able to start the building of the temple. Now, uh, the, I'm going to read some information here um, on facts of the temple, and I got this from gotquestions.org and uh, doing a search for Herod's temple. Um, gotquestions.org is a website that I've referenced before. Um, I enjoy it because it is a Bible-based um, believing group of scholars, basically, that you pose your question and then uh, one person will do the research, respond to it, and then submit it to a committee to make sure that everything that is, is in that response 
it's very much like Wikipedia, but you do have uh, a committee, a group that goes through and makes sure that the answer that is given is biblically based and biblically sound on, based on doctrine. So it's a good resource if you have questions. I don't use it uh, as fundamental truth. I use it as a reference to help me dig in and I rely on the Bible for the truth, but it's a good resource to help me find information. Now for this, to be able to find information on the temple as a historical reference, they do pull from all sorts of different sources and I like it. Okay, that was a really long explanation. So you have uh, Zerubbabel starts the building of the second temple. Over the next 400 years, a series of Gentile rulers alternately built up and defiled the second temple. The cycle culminated in 39 BC in a battle in which King Herod took control of the temple, uh, slaughtering many of the priests and defenders in the process, but also keeping the Roman soldiers from entering the sanctuary. Herod proposed to re renovate the temple in 20 through 19 BC, despite the Jews' fear that he meant to tear it down and never rebuild it. The main work of the temple was completed in one and a half years under King Herod and the outer courtyard in eight years, and the very, very finishing touches of it weren't completed until 63 AD, which is really sad because it's 70 AD when that gets destroyed. King Herod, this is why it's called Herod's Temple. When you look, uh, it's an interesting thing. Is like, why is the Jewish temple in Jesus' day called Herod's Temple? Herod hated the Jews and battled with the Jews. And in fact, many biblical scholars out there, uh, theologians will say, wait a second, isn't Herod the same guy that sought out to kill the Messiah um, and had every uh, um, two-year-old or un uh, younger a child in Bethlehem killed, and that's why Jesus uh, fled down to Egypt to flee from King Herod? Yes, absolutely. That is the same King Herod. You are correct. So in this time, 20 BC or so, um, Herod is trying to win over the Jews, and he assures them that he is going to build an amazing, glorious temple, and he does. The temple that he builds is insane. It is gorgeous. It is amazing. And what I'm going to do now is as I'm describing and reading these uh, facts about the temple, so I'm going to have photos that are going to pop up here and show renderings of what people think the temple looked like. We do have a lot of information in the Bible for the dimensions, but it, it's of the temple itself, the outer courts, the other elements. We have bits and pieces. So we do not know for sure but historical scholars have come up with, uh, there's models, the full-scale models that have been built. In fact, some of the photos that I'm going to show you here are photos of those scale models that show what they think it looked like based on historical documents and on archaeological digs and on the grounds that currently are in Jerusalem right now in the Temple Mount. So, let me read this. On the eastern edge of Jerusalem, just west of Gethsemane, and northwest of the Kidron Valley sat the Temple of Herod. The dimensions of Herod's temple court were 1,500 feet by 1,000 feet. The courtyard itself is 35 acres. I need you to picture this in your mind. A football field is 1.3 acres. So 
it's roughly 26 football fields is the size of the entire Temple Mount space. And you can see this today when you look at the Temple Mount, you can see uh, the, the walls, you can see the structure that was built to support King Herod's temple. It's huge, it's massive. 26 football fields was the size of this whole space. Two gates provided entry into the courts of Herod's temple from the south, four from the west, one the golden gate from the east. Also an underground passage led the court from Antonio Fortress. Just inside the walls ran porticos, roofed walkways flanked on the outside by great walls and inside by rows of tall marble pillars. The northern approach to the temple was the most level and easiest to climb, but the southern gates were the most frequently used. Because a ravine lined the southern wall, great staircases led to the actual gates. Tunnels passed through and into the honeycombed underground area called Solomon's Stable. More stairs led up to the southern section of the Court of the Gentiles. The eastern portico was named King Solomon, named for King Solomon, Solomon's Colonnade, which we'll see that today. And it was somewhere along this wall that the 12-year-old Jesus debated with scholars. That's in Luke 246. Uh, and this is the location of Peter's talk that we're going to see today. So you need to, to, to visual, visualize this amazing, massive structure that in the very center you have the temple itself, but then on the outside you have the courts. You have the courts of women. You have the courts of the Gentiles. You have uh, the, the space where they did the buying and selling um, for uh, sacrifices, where you would go and, and uh, exchange your money to be able to get the temple coins. Um, that was the spot that Jesus, uh, when he uh, came through and threw out the money changers um, and the, the, the collectors and the people who were buying and selling, that was in the temple. The other thing you need to keep in mind is, is that this was designed for thousands upon thousands, tens of thousands of people to come together to be able to worship God, to be able to come together for teachings. There were rooms all over this, both on the inside section, as you can see from photos, as well as in the outer sections. This is very likely where in Acts chapter 2, uh, where we were last week, when you see Pentecost and you see Peter talking to the masses and there were 3,000 added to the number that day, where on in Jerusalem are you going to be able to gather 3,000 people? Well, in the temple courts. It's very likely that that's where that happened. And we're going to see that number between Acts 3 and 4 jump to 5,000 people. Again, the temple courts were designed to hold tens of thousands of people. They had these entrances where some were designed to, to go in, some were designed to go out, to simply allow people to flow in and out. Another thing for historical cultural context, there were three times uh, at, at which the Jews uh, in the area in Jerusalem would go to the temple to worship. Those three times of the day um, were the morning sacrifice, the afternoon sacrifice, and at sunset were the three times throughout the day in which the, the practicing Jews would go to the temple court to be able to worship God at those three times of the day. Okay, so now you have, uh, in our story, we see Peter and John that are walking to the temple courts for the afternoon worship. They are simply going about their day-to-day -day lives. That's an important context to keep in mind. So these are Jews that believe in the way and they believe that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, but they are still going to the temple court. A lot of the teaching that the early disciples did 
was there in the temple courts. In fact, we see that in Acts chapter 2 and 3 throughout where they go to the temple courts to, to preach and to teach. All this happens there. Okay, enough cultural historical context. Let's actually dig into the word. So why don't you open up uh, Acts chapter 3, verse 1. Acts 3, 1. One day, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer at three in the afternoon. Now, a man who was lame from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. I know we only got uh, two verses in and I'm stopping again, but I want to give you some uh, cultural context, excuse me, historical context for the gate Beautiful. Um, so this is from uh, Zondervan Illustrated Bible Backgrounds Commentary, specifically on Acts. Um, so it's commentary that backs up the stuff that happens in Acts. And this is a description that I'm going to read of the gate beautiful. This is most likely one of the gates in the court of women, either on the west side leading to the court of the Israelites, also called the Corinthian gate, or the gate of, of the sanctuary, or on the east side leading to the court of the Gentiles. Both of these gates were exceptionally grand and ornate in appearance, appropriately fitting the description beautiful. The gate beautiful was what it was, was nicknamed, dubbed. Josephus, who's a historical Jewish scholar uh, who wrote at these times, describes their size and splendor well. Of the gates, nine were completely covered with gold and silver, as were the posts, lentils, uh, but the one outside the sanctuary was a Corinthian bronze, was of Corinthian bronze, and far more valuable than those overlaid with silver or even with gold. Every gateway had double doors, each half being 45 feet high. A door 45 feet high, 22 and a half inches wide. Uh, on the inner side, however, the gateway widened out, and on either hand, there was a gate room 45 feet square, shaped like a tower over 60 feet high. Each room was supported by two pillars 18 feet around. The other gates were all of the same size, but the one beyond the Corinthian gate, opening out from the court of the women on the east of the, and facing the gate of the sanctuary, which was much bigger, for its height was 75 feet. That of the doors were 50 feet. I mean, these are massive, massive doors. And the decorations were more magnificent and the gold and silver plates being extremely thick. So, uh, gorgeous gate. It's dubbed the gate beautiful because it is the most ornate of the gates leading into the temple. So, uh, th this gentleman who's 40 years old um, for his entire life has been lame, not able to walk, and was taken every day to that same exact gate to beg, to be able to get alms for the poor. There was no uh, government system to be able to give aid to those people that were disabled. So they would go to uh, a common place for believers in, in God to be able to uh, get alms, to get uh, uh, blessings, to get money. Okay, picking it up on verse 3. When he, this is the, uh, the guy that was born uh, lame, when he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Peter looked straight at him, as did John. Then Peter said, look at us. So the man gave him his attention, expecting to get something from them. 
Then Peter said, silver or gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up. And instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. Then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. The word that they use here for jumping is the same word that they use to describe uh, a deer or elk or gazelle jumping. I don't know if you've seen that before, but when you see a deer run, it is, I mean, their leap is, is huge. They're j- Picture that. This guy's jumping for joy and praising God. Understandably so. He's 40 years old and he's been lame his entire life and this is the first time he's walking, let alone jumping and praising God. Then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. When all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. So now they go inside, they go to Solomon's Colonnade, which is that beautiful spot where, I mean, it's just gorgeous. As a photographer, I'd love to be able to photograph in there. Just gorgeous, absolutely gorgeous. While the man man held on to Peter and John, all the people were astonished and came running to them in the place called Solomon's Colonnade. When Peter saw this, he said to them, Fellow Israelites, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. You handed him over to be killed, and you disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. You disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that our murderer be released to you. That's Barabbas. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. By faith in the name of Jesus, this man who you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has completely healed him, as you can all see. So a few notes in here, a few important elements. I mentioned this last week in Acts chapter 2. I'm going to mention it again. At this point, the apostles are preaching to the Jews. Their message at this point is specifically to Jews. They are in the temple court, and he's speaking directly to Jews. And that's why his sermon here, the message that he gives, is it references back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. These are the fathers of Judaism. So he's referencing back to that, which is profound. But an important thing that he also says, it is in the name of Jesus. And this is going to come up a lot. If you recall... Back in Matthew, I think it's in Matthew, it's in the Gospels, I don't remember which one. Jesus heals the paralytic man, right? This is in the scene where um, Jesus is preaching and he's inside a house and they're so uh, uh, 
overwhelmed with passion to get their crippled friend to him that they actually lower him down through a hole in the roof because there's so many people gathered around. And then he heals this man, but he says, uh, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing it from memory at this point, uh, he says, which is harder for me to say your sins are forgiven or get up and walk, but to show you that the son of man has the ability to forgive sins, your sins are forgiven, get up and walk. So he gets up and walks. And immediately after this, the Pharisees ask, by what name, by whose authority do you do this? You're going to see this in Acts chapter 4 next week. We're going to see this. They ask again, by whose name? This is important. The reason why the Pharisees are doing this is because in the Mosaic law, in the law, specifically in Deuteronomy, uh, it's Deuteronomy chapter 13, you see that the law says that if anybody performs a miraculous sign or a healing by any name other than that of God, you're to stone him to death. So that's what they're trying to do is they're trying to prove that, that, that uh, at the time in, in um, the Gospels, in Matthew, they say that he's uh, possessed by Beelzebub. It is through uh, being possessed by a demon that he himself is able to cast out demons and do these miracles. So Peter says it is in, by Jesus' name. It is in the name of Jesus that he is healed. So that's an important reference, and we'll hit that even more next week when um, Peter and John go before the Sanhedrin, the same group of Jewish leaders that convict and uh, send Jesus to the cross. They're going to go and preach an amazing message to the same group with boldness. And that's why I want you to remember um, John 19, um, verse 20. Or excuse me, I inverted that. John 20, verse 19 is, is that we saw at the beginning of the study today that they were in the locked door out of fear, but the resurrected Christ changed them. Okay, enough tangents. One other thing, another tangent, I apologize, but one other thing that I want to point out here, they immediately point to Jesus. They take no credit of themselves. And this is one of the things that you see throughout the whole book. Whenever a miraculous thing is done, the believer who does it immediately gives credit to God. But what do the people do? The people immediately want to worship that individual. Whenever you see angels appear before men, immediately the men fall down and start worshiping the angels. And what do the angels do? Do not worship me. Worship God. Do not worship me. In the same way, these apostles are saying, don't worship me. And it's going to happen later on where Paul is going to be worshiped. He's going to be teaching, um, I think it's in Corinthians, and they're going to say, uh, they're going to start worshiping him. And he's going to say, I am just like you. I'm a normal dude. I am just like you. It is through God. Give glory to God and worship God. That's an important thing to note is that Peter and John immediately give credit. They say it's through Jesus that this man is healed. Okay, continuing on verse 17. Now, fellow Israelites, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders. What is he talking about there? He's talking about crucifying Jesus. That's what he's talking about. How does Peter know that they were acting in ignorance? Because Jesus said that. Jesus said that in Luke 23, 34, on the cross, Jesus says, forgive them, they know not what they do. 
So Peter knows that, that they're ignorance. Now, fellow Israelites, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders. But this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, saying that his Messiah would suffer. Repent then and turn to God. That's the main point of his message. Repent and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord, and that he may send the Messiah who has been appointed for you, Jesus. Heaven must receive him until the time comes for God to restore everything. That's a reference to the second coming, when God restores everything. As he promised long ago, through his holy prophets, for Moses said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. You must listen to everything he tells you. Anyone who does not listen to him will be completely cut off from their people. That's a reference to Deuteronomy 18, 18. You can look that up. Pick it up on verse 24. Indeed, beginning with Samuel, all the prophets who have spoken have foretold these days. Wait a tick. He said, beginning with Samuel, all the prophets who have spoken have foretold these days. Flip to the front of your Bible. In mine, I have a table of contents. I have the five books of Moses, that's the Pentateuch, which is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Then you have the historical books. I'm not going to go through and list all of these, but there's Samuel, First and Second Samuel is in the historical books. Then you have the books of poetry, Job, Psalm, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Psalm of Psalms. Then you have the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel. And then you have the book of the Twelve, which the Jewish Bible does put it as one book, most Christian Bibles today break it up, and you have the minor prophets, which are 12 different books um, that are the minor prophets. Major and minor are simply in size, not in power or strength. It's simply in the size of those books. So Peter's wrong, right? I mean, clearly Samuel is listed in the historical books. Right now in class, in my master's program, I'm going through the prophets right now. And I already studied First and Second Samuel when I went through the books of history. So Peter's wrong, right? Well, no, no, Peter's not wrong. The thing that you need to realize is, is that our organization of the Bible is different than the organization of the Bible at that time. They obviously didn't even have the New Testament, um, but the prophets from their perspective, um, the prophets are basically any, uh, uh, starting with Abraham is listed as a prophet. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Aaron, all of them are listed as prophets uh, in the Talmud. Now, the Talmud is, actually, I'm just going to let the Talmud explain what the Talmud is, and I'm just going to read this. Um, the Talmud, the Talmud is a collection of early biblical discussions with the comments of generations of teachers who have devoted their lives to the study of Scripture. It is more, however, than a mere book of laws. It records the thoughts rather than the events of a thousand years of national life of the Jewish people, all their oral traditions carefully gathered and preserved with a love devote in its trust and simplicity. 
accepted as a standard study, it became endeared to the people who, as they were forbidden to add to or diminish from the law of Moses, would not suffer this work of their rabbis to be tempered, to be tampered with in any manner. So this is when you see the law of the prophets, uh, you have um, the Jewish law, but then you have oral tradition, right? This is a writing down of the oral traditions. This is the additional laws that they made because you can't change scripture and you can't change the Pentateuch, but they wanted to make sure that they followed the books of law. So they made another one of all of the oral traditions and the traditions of the elders, as the Bible describes it. A lot of those are contained in the Talmud. The Mishnah is another book that has a lot of these same things. Well, according to the Talmud, um, again, uh, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Aaron, um, uh, Joseph, uh, a lot, there's, I think, 46. In fact, I wrote it down. I know I wrote it down in here. Ah, yes. The Talmud names 48 prophets and seven prophetesses. So uh, seven female prophets and 48 male prophets um, that are listed. So, um, and going back to verse 24, Peter is calling Samuel a prophet. Now, he's not a prophet in that he has a prophetic book. He has a book of history, but he himself was a prophet. As you will recall, for the Bible scholar out there, it is Samuel who anoints both Saul as well as David. Saul as the first king, and then David as the second king over Israel. Okay, so uh, verse 24. Peter's talking to the large group of Jews. Indeed, beginning with Samuel, all the pro prophets who have spoken have foretold these days. And you are heirs of the prophets and of the covenant God made with your fathers. He said to Abraham, through your offspring, all peoples on earth will be blessed. Where did he say that? Okay, well, we're going to flip to two passages in Genesis. First, we're going to do Genesis 12.3. So flip over to Genesis 12.3. In fact, just pick it up on Genesis 12. So Genesis 12. The Lord said to Abram, Go and your father's house, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. This is the beginning of the Abrahamic covenant. This is the unconditional one-way commitment that God gives to his people Israel, starting with Abraham. Now let's flip it over, and we're actually going to pick it up on Genesis 22. So a few pages over, Genesis 22, uh, picking it up on verse 17. I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities and their enemies, and through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed. 
So twice now, God has said specifically to Abraham, and again, this is part of the Abrahamic covenant, through you and your people, all peoples of the earth will be blessed. This is a prophecy of a single individual that will bless the entire world. It's Jesus. That's what Peter is saying here is, is that this is a prophecy that God gave to Abraham. Through your offspring, all peoples on earth will be blessed. When God raised up his servant, he sent him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your wicked ways. So what is our takeaway? As we look at this passage, as we look at Acts chapter 3, what is the takeaway for us today? There's two things that I want to hit on just real quick. First of all, Peter and John and their ministry. Notice that they're just going about their day-to-day lives. I would wager Peter and John were in the middle of a conversation, walking up to the midday prayer. They're Christians. They weren't dubbed Christians yet. They were just called followers of the way, followers of Christ. But as Christians, I'm guessing they're running a little late. They're going on Christian time, which is usually about 10 to 15 minutes late. Most church services start around 10 to 15 minutes late. That's Christian time. So I'm guessing they're probably running a little bit late. And I would wager that as Peter's walking up, that little voice that he's starting to recognize as the Holy Spirit urges him and tells him, heal him. You got to stop and talk to him. And I'll wager Peter's got butterflies in his stomach as he goes up. He's far bolder than he was in John 19, though. He's not locked inside a, 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 a room for fear. He's, he's empowered and he's becoming stronger and stronger in his conviction and his faith. So the point that I'm getting at here is that John and Peter don't say, hey, we're going to start up this ministry. We're going to start up a 403CB non-for-profit and we're going to go out and we're going to do street preaching and we're going to do this and we're going to make this uh, you know, mission statement and now this is our value statement and we are going to raise all these funds and we're going to do all this stuff. They are going about their daily lives and then the Holy Spirit causes them to pause and stop and do something in the middle of their day-to-day lives. And that's what I would challenge you with. This is one of two things that I want you to pull away from this today, from this teaching, is you don't need to be a Bible teacher. You don't need to be a preacher or a pastor. Um, you don't need to have be the head of some non-for-profit organization to have a ministry. Your ministry as a believer is to reflect Christ on everybody that's around you. As you go about your day-to-day life, don't be so busy and so stuck on what you need to do today that you don't leave space for the Holy Spirit to work in you. And the more time you spend in prayer and the more time you spend studying His Word, the more you will learn the Holy Spirit's voice and it'll change you and it'll call you out to do small things. Now, it could be that the Holy Spirit is going to cause you to do this amazing, miraculous healing. But it might also be that he simply calls you to stop and help somebody who has a stalled car on the side of the road. 
or to call someone for somebody else who's in uh, has had a car accident. Or it might simply be to be a shoulder for somebody to cry on. Your job, my job as a Christ follower is to reflect the love of God, to reflect Christ. Now, one of the things that, that a phrase that I've heard that I, I like, it works well, is that don't try to clean the fish before you catch the fish. So with that, and I'm going to go on a little bit of a tangent here, but with that, it's not our responsibility as believers to dictate morality, Christian morality, on non-believers. It's not our job, let me say that again, to dictate morality on immoral people. It won't stick. You can't go to the alcoholic and say, you need Jesus, put down that alcohol. You can't drink, don't drink, don't drink. The responsibility is to go and love on that person and be there in their life and introduce them to Christ. Our job is not to be legalists and to go around and slam the Bible and say, we need to pass this law and this ordinance and, and we need to make sure that, that you know, this doesn't happen and pass this law. It's my opinion that our responsibility as Christians is to reflect Christ in anything and everything we do. And the number one thing we can do is what Peter does here. He points to Jesus. The reason that this man is healed is that 3,000 people are going to be affected by this. Excuse me. The number is going to grow to 5,000. 3,000 people joined the way at Pentecost. Their numbers grew to 3,000. At the end of Acts chapter 4, the number is going to grow to 5,000 because specifically of this man being healed. And Peter points to Jesus and he explained that this is specifically happening because of Jesus. So when I say that you need to go out, our job is to reflect Christ and introduce people to Christ. Every single person has a God-sized hole in their heart. And I know that sounds cheesy, but the idea simply is, is that we are made by a creator and there's a spot in us for that creator to live within us. That's the Holy Spirit. We are, the Bible says that we are a temple, a home for the Holy Spirit. And for the believer, you know what I'm talking about. There is a hole in you that only God can fill. And when you have that as a believer, you feel it, you know it, you feel whole and complete. Though you might, you know, walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you'll feel no evil. That verse is not, it, you are going to walk through a valley. Look at the freaking dog hair. Thank you. Thank you, Lexi. You're adding dog hair to our shoot. Though you will walk through valleys, because you have God in your heart, you can do anything because you're complete. But to the non-believer out there, there's a God-sized hole. And just look to social media to see what people try to fill it up with. Look to television, look, look to anything, and you can see people try to fill up that God-sized hole with possession, with wealth, with always, always trying to get the, the, the next thing. When I have this, when I have a nicer car, when I have a, a house, when I have a bigger house, when I have a boat, when I have a vacation home, when I have that next promotion, when I make more money, when I do this, 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 this. You are making more money now 
than you used to? Are you happier now than you used to be? Think about that for a second. When I was in college, I thought when I had a job and a house, I'd be so happy because I'd have a car, I'd have my own house, I'd have my own place, and I would be complete. And now my honey-do list is like freaking three pages long of all of the projects that we need to do on the house. And I've got as much strife as I did then, but I know that my wealth is not in my house, it's through God. That God-sized hole we try to fill with all sorts of different things. Some people try to fill it up with drugs or with alcohol. If you're depressed and an alcoholic, that first drink does make you feel better. And the second drink feels even better yet. But then you have the third, the fourth, the fifth, and the sixth. And the next day when you wake up, do you feel better than you did when you had the first drink? No, because anything that we try of our own accord to fill up that God-sized hole with, of our own volition, of our own doing, always will leave us wanting more. It's like sin. It is sin. Sin, there is enjoyment in sin for a season, but it's false. It's fake. It's junk food. I love that analogy. Sin is junk food. It looks delicious. That Big Mac, that huge, massive, whatever your temptation is, whatever your junk food is, when you house that, it's just like, oh my gosh, this feels so good. This tastes so good. It tastes so amazing. Oh, how do you feel a half hour later? For me personally, I, I, I love eating that big cheeseburger, but immediately afterwards, I feel worse than had I not eaten it. That's sin. That's the way sin works. There's a God-sized hole in all of our hearts. And our job is not to say, you can't do this, you can't do this, you can't do this, you can't do this. Because that alcoholic, well, let me, let me make it personal here for me. And I know I'm going on a long tangent, but I, think, I feel like this is important. I was addicted to pornography. Boom, there's the statement. Boom, that's a bold one. And I'm sharing that. That was something that happened to me. It started in high school, to be honest. It started in high school. Uh, and then the internet really made it incredibly difficult because you can see anything that you want on the internet. So all through college, uh, I got hooked. I got absolutely addicted to pornography. And then I got married. I became a Christian um, in college. I got married, still addicted. I had accountability groups. I shared with uh, my small group of guys, hey, I'm struggling with this. And we'd pray about it. Um, as a small group, we read through um, Every Man's Battle. Phenomenal read, great book. And there's all these steps and things that could be done to overcome. Um, and they're good. They are good. But you know how the addiction went away? It just went away. What did I do differently? I simply looked to Jesus. I know that sounds cheesy, but think about it. How, what I did in my life was daily spending time studying the Bible, daily getting in and trying to figure out God's message to me. This is the best way for us to be able to know God's heart for us is to study this thing and learn it and then spend time in prayer. And it became habitual to me uh, where every day, every morning, I'd wake up and I would do my reading and then I'd take some time in prayer before I'd attack my day and start my day. 
and it was really weird. All of a sudden I realized, oh my gosh, it, it's been a month since I've looked at anything and I'm not even trying. And then it was six months and then it was a year and then it was five years. And that's how it goes is the thing is, I put God first. And the way the alcoholic overcomes the alcoholism is to allow Jesus to come into their life. You cannot clean the fish before you catch the fish. We can't clean the fish. That's the point I'm getting at is, is that it's Jesus. Jesus is the only one who can change us. And when you truly believe that and lean on that with everything you've got, he will change you day by day from the inside out and you will become the person God wants you to be. That was a long tangent, but I think it was an important one. The other thing I'm just gonna hit on real quick was healing. I'm gonna make another bold statement. For the believer who prays for healing of themselves, for the person who has some issue, let's say it's cancer, uh, Cancer's a very good one. If you have cancer and you pray for healing, I guarantee you as a believer, God will heal you 100%. It's kind of a bold statement, right? How can I make that? And uh, immediately people are th no doubt thinking, Dave, I had a very good friend, believer, cancer, died. Yeah, yeah, well, hear me out. These are the three ways that God heals people. The first way is a miraculous healing that is supernatural. And that's what we see here uh, in, in our passage today in Acts 3. We see a paralytic, a guy who uh, from birth is not able to walk, walk. Peter says, get up and walk. Instantly healed. In preparation for going into Acts, I knew that I was going to be going into the Holy Spirit talking about miraculous healing. So I, I, I mentioned this at the intro and last week that I asked everybody that I, well, not everybody I know, but I asked my close inner circle for stories that they have of miraculous healings. The most common one I heard were cases of cancer in which the life expectancy is X. And the probability is, is that your cancer has grown to such an extent, you only have X amount of years to live. You are going to die. It's going to happen. And then prayer, and then the cancer goes away. And the doctors cannot explain it. It doesn't make sense. It do, there's no case studies to prove it. They can't explain why it would just simply go away. That's a miracle. That's God working. That's a healing. That's way number one. Way number two, I believe that God has enabled us as human beings to be scientific and to be creative and that God inspires science for us to be able to come up with vaccines, for us to come up with ways of healing ourselves. I don't think it's sacrilegious to get the vaccine. I don't believe that the COVID-19 vaccine is the mark of the beast. No, it's science. And I believe that God is in science. So I do believe that people will be healed through following medicine and through following science that God inspires. And through that, God can use it. God can use medicine. The third way in which you're healed, and this is exclusive for the believer, it's when you die. And some people are thinking, wait, 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 whoa, whoa, whoa. How is death better than having cancer, Dave? Well, for the believer, 
death is way better. For the Christian, the best day of your life is the day that you die. Think about that for a second. The best day of your life is when you die because you get to go to heaven. You get to have a resurrected body. I don't know what that's going to look like. I'm curious how old I will be in my resurrected body if I won't have an age. I don't know. I don't know what I'm going to look like, but I know that my knees, that as a 40-year-old man when I get up, when I'm training, when I do a long bike ride, the next day, my morning, I get up and my knees are just, they're grinding. My resurrected body, I'm going to be able to do jumping jacks. I'm going to be leaping like this guy. So that's why I make the statement for the believer, God will heal you one way or another. Paul had some sort of infirmity of the flesh. We don't know exactly what it was, but we're going to see it in Acts. We haven't met Paul yet. He hasn't come on the scene yet, but he will. But we know he had some sort of um, infirmity of the flesh, something that was a chronic pain that he had. And he prayed over and over to God, and God told him, no, stop praying about that because you're always going to have that. And some people, you might just have something that you are going to deal with for the rest of your life. But this life is a blink. It is a vapor. It is a mist and then it's gone. And you will be healed for the believer when you go to heaven. So now to wrap up, and I am wrapping up. I know this was a long one. We had lots of tangents. Uh, if you aren't a believer, why not? It's very easy to become a believer. And I know I did this last week, but I'm going to pray the prayer again because um, why not? The prayer of salvation to become a believer is very simple. All you need to do is believe in your heart that Jesus is your Savior and that he died for your sins and that you are made whole through him. And then you confess that with your mouth and you're saved. And you are a believer. And whatever ailment you have when you die, poof, you have a resurrected body. And whatever the issue is, is gone. It's a phenomenal thing. It really is the most important decision you ever will make in your life is what are you going to do about Christ? So I ask everybody to bow their heads with me now. And if you're a believer, pray this prayer with me. If you're not a believer, I invite you to pray this with me right now and accept Christ into your life. Lexi, you going to pray with us? Lexi's going to join us in prayer. Thank you, Lexi. Lord, I need you. Thank you for dying for me on the cross. Thank you for dying for my sins and taking on the penalty I deserved. I invite you into my life and into my heart. Please change me from the inside out and make me more like you. I love you, Lord. Thank you for saving me. I pray all this in Jesus' name. And Lord, for that person who just prayed that prayer for the first time, Lord, surround them with your love. I pray, Lord, that they will feel your presence. They'll feel the Holy Spirit, give them a warm hug as you now are part of them and they have assurance of heaven and now their soul, their home, that hole in their heart is now a, a, a home for you, a home for the Holy Spirit to live in them. Lord, I pray that you will work in their lives 
moment by moment, hour by hour, and day by day, and that you will change them. Make them more like you. Cleanse them. Whatever issues they're dealing with, if they're dealing with an addiction to pornography, if they're dealing with uh, an addiction to drugs or alcoholism or anger, if they have an, uh, an angry heart and, the, and it's just, ah, you are the only thing that can change them, Lord. And I am so grateful to every believer that's listening right now, that they have you in their heart. Lord, I pray that they will open themselves up to your teaching and your guidance, and day by day they will die to themselves and allow you to lead them and guide them. We love you, Lord, and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I know we went way over our time for this one, but I just got so excited about all these different things. Next week, we're going to look at Acts chapter 4. The Jewish leaders are not naive to what just happened. The paralyzed man, the man who was lame from birth, is literally standing next to Peter and John, and they cannot refute it. They take them back to the Sanhedrin, they lock them up and imprison them, and they say, what are we going to do? And Peter and John go before the Sanhedrin and they are going to proclaim Christ boldly. You are going to see a drastic shift from the Peter who denied Christ on the day of his death, from the, the, the Peter who locked himself away on the first day of the week on Sunday afterwards. You are going to see a bold Peter who is indwelt with the Holy Spirit and who can't help but proclaim Christ. Have a phenomenal week and I'll see you guys next week.